You're listening to Beyond Numbers, a podcast by Zero for accountants and bookkeepers. In this series, you'll hear from leaders within some of the accounting industry's pace-setting firms who will share news, views, and creative solutions so you can step away with some inspiration or new ideas to take back to your own business. Welcome back to Beyond Numbers. I'm your host, Ash Gibson. In this episode, I sat down with Zero's UK and EMEA Managing Director, Alexander von Schurmeister. Alex joined Zero at the beginning of 2022, taking the reins from Gary Turner, who had been steering the ship for the previous 12 years. Taking over a business like Zero from a fully-fledged legend of the accounting industry is no mean feat, but I've seen firsthand how Alex has so expertly taken hold of the role, leading us forward with confidence and a real human spirit. For those who have met Alex already, you'll probably know that he is incredibly passionate about small business and he has been blown away by the calibre of the accounting and bookkeeping industry. Internally at Zero, we have really felt his passion for people, for great leadership and of course, great wine. It's clear we're in good hands. So, whether you've met him already or not, I hope you enjoy this episode getting to know the real Alex von Schurmeister. Alex, welcome to Beyond Numbers. I'm very happy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you, Ash. I'm delighted you finally asked. <laughs> I was just waiting for you to, you know, get your feet under the desk. Yeah, no, I know you were. Yeah, I don't want to <laughs> overwhelm you too soon in the, in the job. When you first said yes to the job, what excited you the most about getting started at zero? The people. I fundamentally was blown away by the quality on an intellectual level as well as on a human level of every single person I met as part of the interviewing process. And I met quite a few people. And there was, <laughs> it almost started with a bit of suspicion, right? Ash, we're like, ah, this is too good to be true. I just, I've, I've gone through enough processes with other companies and other jobs where you expect a certain mix and at zero, that just wasn't the case. Every single person I met, whether they were members of a board, whether they were executives like our CEO, Steve and, and Rachel, or other people I met, I just couldn't believe how incredibly aspirational they were, how incredibly um, passionate they were in the way they talked about zero and what zero does. And ultimately, I just kept walking away from every one of those conversations. I'd really, I'd really love to work with people like that. So I just have to put that first. But then close second, the more I learned about the opportunity, the more I learned about zero, and the more I learned about the space zero operates in. And as you know, I'm, I'm not an accountant, right? This isn't a space I was exposed to. I know small businesses well, but I didn't know zero specifically the accounting space. But the more I heard about it, I just really, really got intrigued about the challenge. I, you know, I, I love the fact that it's an industry which clearly is driving a fundamental transformation in the way small businesses and accountant bookkeepers do the numbers. I love the way that Zero is a company that is driving that transformation and very much leading it and has incredible momentum. But I also love the fact that it's not done yet and there's just massive growth and there's a lot still to be done, right? So it, it felt like it was just a really interesting challenge to be able to sink my teeth into. And so it's a combination of the people I met and then what these people were talking about that we are doing 
they had my name written all over it or, or I just really wanted to get stuck in. And how do you feel now? Just as enthusiastic, if anything, almost reaffirmed or strengthening that. The space we operate in, helping small businesses be successful through their advisors and their communities, helping accounting and bookkeepers by providing them the tools to help these small businesses. The depth and the breadth and the richness of that space is far bigger and beyond what I had assumed it would be or what I had been led to believe. There are layers and layers and layers of it in there. And, and the layers that make it intellectually even more fascinating than I thought it would be. The layers of emotion and, and of real emotional attachments to what we do that are way deeper than I thought they would be. And some of the challenges about how we tackle them and how we grow are, you know, they're both more complex, but also more fascinating than I thought. So that's a massive tick. And then on the people front, look, you know, as I said, I'd love the people I met during the interview process and it was quite a few, but it was maybe a dozen. Well, now I've met hundreds and hundreds of them. And over and over and over again, I just couldn't be more pleased with the people I get to work with every day. I'm really interested to hear about your time at eBay. You spent 10 years or so there, um, starting out as marketing director and working your way up to chief marketing officer before taking on a role as VP managing eBay's expansion and cross-border trade across Europe. I mean, that all sounds impressive, right? Mm. How did your time at eBay prepare you for this role as MD at Zero? eBay is a company I was at where I kind of graduated from being a functional leader, functional expert to becoming a general manager, right? I was marketing director at eBay France, and then I became the country manager of eBay France. And so I, I did that transition from a functional expertise to full P&L management. And then at some point, I then did that all over again at the regional level, right? I became the regional chief marketing officer, and then I kind of graduated from that to again managing the P&L of eBay um, in Europe. There's a lot of learning that goes into those transitions. And I also was at eBay because I was there for quite some time. I was at eBay during several cycles in the economy, right? The, the very, very kind of tough times around 2008, 2009, 2010, but also some hyper growth years we were growing triple digit. And as a general manager, I just feel it was probably the most formative time I've had in any one single company. It was just the learning on steroids. Um, the second thing I would say is, and it's particularly pertinent to the role here at, at Zero. it was really my first interaction with small businesses. And initially, almost accidental, right? Because eBay never went out at the get-go and said, we are going to talk to small businesses. They talked to individuals, and you know it's called a C2C business, right? Consumer to consumer. It just so happens that these consumers very quickly detected that eBay offered a very attractive platform to build businesses on it. And so we started kind of identifying the fact that all these entrepreneurs were starting to launch businesses on eBay. And eBay then started catering to that, said, well, wait a minute, we have something going on here. How can we better help individuals build businesses on eBay? But moreover, how do we actually create an environment where we start attracting businesses onto eBay? And that then led to, well, this can't just be accidental. Once you recognize you have businesses on eBay, you need to treat them as businesses, right? They have very different requirements and very different needs. 
And so the product you're then building and designing needs to be adapted to their needs, the way you talk to them, the marketing campaigns, et cetera, et cetera. And so I really started accidentally developing an expertise in, well, how do you help small businesses build a business on eBay, right? How do you cater to them from a product perspective, from a communications perspective, et cetera, et cetera. It was just fascinating to be part of that. And, and, and I guess the other parallel to some extent, look, just like Zero is revolutionizing the accounting industry with cloud accounting and kind of digitalizing small businesses in their numbers. eBay at the time was a real revolutionary in, in building a marketplace business that didn't exist, right? This notion of supply and demand that didn't even know existed, suddenly meeting on a platform and exchanging or interchanging on a platform was really, really new at the time. And so we certainly felt like trailblazers in, in establishing a new sector, a new industry that hadn't existed before. So what's been your perception of the accounting industry so far? Is it what you expected it to be? No, not at all. And you know, the accounting industry, maybe more than other industries, or maybe just the same, but the accounting industry comes with <laughs> ridiculous old-fashioned stereotypes as to what what they look like and how they speak and what they act like and what they do. And to be honest, I think a lot of those stereotypes, to some extent, get they get almost permeated even further by the way accounting gets taught in universities. Right? When I remember the way I was taught accounting in school, uh, you know, I, I didn't like it. It was very, it was very dry and it was very much driven on understanding balance sheets and income statements and, and you know, reading long kind of cash flow statements in, in, in annual reports. What none of those stereotypes tells you about and what none of those ways of teaching accounting tells you about is that at the end of the day, you have one person helping another person be successful by helping them understand their numbers, right? The humanity of that interaction, the deep, 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 deep impact that an accountant or a bookkeeper can have in a small business by guiding them, by saving them, by helping them, it's just incredible. And none of that, none of that is visible. None of that is, I, I think, understood or fully appreciated by people outside of the industry. And so when I, when I started here, and I told you earlier that I was excited about the growth opportunities and about working with small business, et cetera, I had not picked up on that. I wasn't aware that I would be very quickly bombarded or exposed to this emotional element of the industry that I just didn't know exist. It just humanizes everybody, right? All of a sudden, the people we interact with, and, and you look what they're passionate about, and why they do what they do and what they're working on and the impact that they're having, not just on the customers, but on the communities, right? Many of our accountant bookkeepers are in, you know, in, in small towns or in, in, in parts of the country where they literally almost kind of, the entire little community depends on them. And you realize the impact they're having, uh, to me, it's mind-blowing. I absolutely love it. Yeah, we actually talked about that on the first episode of Beyond Numbers and it's almost like accountancy needs a rebrand, right? Like people need to understand that actually accountants and bookkeepers are kind of superheroes in a way, you know, like they just fly in and help these businesses to, to grow and to survive. And I think COVID was 
like one of those times where it became so apparent how important they were in digesting all the information that the government was throwing out there and they were the lifeline for small businesses and yeah it's, um, but even today right is there's still very little actual recognition again outside of the industry of saying wait a minute <laughs> if there's one group we owe our lives to is accountant bookkeepers because the speed at which they were able to digest and process everything being thrown at them while being disrupted themselves, right? I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> like, remember, they were being disrupted yeah. themselves, yet at the same time, where they were digesting and turning that into actionable insights for their small businesses, so that they could continue operating. I mean, it, it you know, it frankly, is heroic, absolutely heroic. Yeah. So, what opportunities do you see for the future of the industry? Look, we're not done yet, right? I mean, the phase we are in is far, far, far from being completed yet. And there's still a lot to be done around digitalizing small businesses and helping accountant bookkeepers with the tools to do that successfully and efficiently. And so, you know, this may sound boring, but for several years to come, I think a lot of what we will be doing is, is more of the same. At the same time, and we're seeing that now, I, I think the complexity of what small businesses need and what some of these accountant bookkeeping practices need in order to support them, it's being served by a plethora of choices when it comes to accounting software, but also all the adjacent apps for that, right? Whether you need something for document management or for proposal management or you know for workflow management or project management, et cetera. We are living in a world where businesses and practices have real choice of putting together a best of breed app stack of what they need to do the job they want to be doing successfully and also make sure that that's economically viable for them and that everything integrates as smoothly as possible to make their work more efficient, right? And so I, th I think we will continue seeing a lot of that in terms of just the way the software keeps developing. I think you will keep seeing new software that integrates with some of the bigger packages, but you'll also continue seeing consolidation. Third thing to observe, and it's very obvious to us, and we see this every day, uh, you know it, is we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the content bookkeeping space anyway. Some of that driven by private equity, some of it not driven by private equity, a lot of it driven by generational changes uh, with account bookkeeping practices. That is generating consolidation, that is generating movement, that is generating new expectations of what customers want and what clients need and obviously what these practices need. And whenever there is movement, I think there's massive opportunity for everybody involved in that. And then look, last thing to be said, I don't have a magic wand or, or, or silver bullet on this and I don't know what the future holds, but I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that all things data, machine learning, artificial intelligence will play a role in all industries going forward and our industry is no exception in that. You have to assume with the amount of data that businesses generate and the way that data is being captured in the software that the opportunities for players such as Zero and others and the businesses themselves to do much more with that data are absolutely endless and like we can let our imagination flow in terms of what that means exactly but we will we will see quite a bit of innovation there in the next five years for sure yeah absolutely and there's a lot of talk about ai across the industry 
at the moment. I, I think there has been for quite a long time, but I think with tools like chat, GPT, it's sort of ramped up again. What kind of skills do you think future accounting industry professionals might need to lean into? The most important skill isn't even an AI skill. I think the most important skill for anyone, and not just in our industry, in any industry, is just adaptability, agility, flexibility, willingness to deal with uncertainty, appetite for innovation and risk-taking. Right? The reality, I hate to bore you with this, ask because you would have heard me say this many, many times before, the seven most expensive words in business are, we have always done it this way. And anyone that sticks to that, right? Anyone who says, well, I'm not gonna change anything because we've always done it this way. Look, I, I hate to say it. Someone's gonna come and eat your breakfast. And so, you know, to me, AI falls into the, even if it makes you uncomfortable, even if you're afraid it might cannibalize your business or parts of your business, if you don't embrace it, somebody else will, right? And so to me, it's more this, this appetite for risk-taking and, and, and flexibility and adaptability that's important, right? Do I think everybody should go out and you know, go to AI school? No, not necessarily, right? I, I do think, generally speaking, being data-driven or at least having someone in your practice that is comfortable in being data-driven, well, that's going to come at a premium, right? And, and I just don't know that businesses and practices in the future that don't have a very, very strong kind of data-driven premise are going to do very well. And that shouldn't come at the expense of not caring about emotions and human aspects. That's probably a separate topic of conversation. But you do need to embrace data and, 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 and see chat GPT or see AI as a tool you want to be playing and testing and experimenting with and not see it as the enemy that's going to come and eat your business away. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. Uh, many of our listeners are leaders in accounting firms or aspiring to be. So how would you describe your leadership style? Still evolving, <laughs> for starters, Ash. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you're ever the finished product. I don't think there's a, a style that at some point just settles in and becomes static. And then that's it, right? It's, it's, I'd like to think that my leadership style is the result of my experiences in the past and what I've learned through those experiences and people that have surrounded me and people that have led me, but also people that have reported to me and, and, and that I've been able to draw and learn from. But I'm still doing that today and I will continue doing that. And specific periods would have accelerated or challenged or strengthened my leadership style more than others, right? There was no instruction manual for COVID. I think any leader would have drawn lessons and developed certain leadership skills during COVID, hopefully good ones. To me, probably some of the biggest lessons I've learned and, and which influenced my style today, um, one is I go into it assuming that my entire team is better at doing what they do than I could possibly be. And if, if you start with that assumption and you, you walk into the room saying, well, I'm the dumbest person in the room, right? Your role immediately changes to, well, how can I facilitate? How can I help? How can I coach? But what I'm not doing is telling you how to do your job. And the reality is, what, why would you hire really, really, really smart people that are really good at their job to then tell them how to do their job? And so I, I, I kind of go into it with an assumption of, I'm here to listen, I'm here to help, to remove obstacles. 
I'm here to give you air cover when challenges come. But it is really a um, almost a maximizer role, if you will, more than anything else. The other thing I've learned over the years is, is you know, listening is much more precious than talking, and, and you cannot learn if you're not listening, and you cannot observe and adapt and improve things if, if you're shutting people out. And so <laughs> little things like, you know, try and be the last person to speak up in a room so you give others the time to express themselves instead of conditioning the conversation from the beginning. Little things like, you know, trying to be humble enough when you hear something to kind of see whether whether there's something for you to copy from that and to learn from that rather than assume, well, well you know, I'm the leader and I know better. And on the contrary, right, I, I think I learn more from my teams than, than from any other source on a constant basis. But as I said, I, you know, I don't think I'm the finished product. And I think leadership is very much, very much a journey. Mm-hmm. In my experience with you, I've found you to be a very sort of empathetic and human leader. How do you balance that with being results driven and, and getting stuff done in a hyper growth company like Zero? No, thanks, Ash. Um, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I don't think being results driven and having high expectations has to come at the expense of not having emotions and being empathetic. And, and equally, I don't think being empathetic means being weak and not being demanding. Ultimately, you know, I, th- I think we want to work in an environment where we are all driven to be the best, very best we can be. Where we feel that the support and the investment for us to be the very best we can be is there. But also where we're being pushed to be the very best we can be. And, and being pushed means we're being you know, given stretch targets and stretch goals. We're being given fair but candid feedback as to how we're doing and getting to those goals and where we could do more or do better and where we're doing things that are working well. And look, you know, I don't think you have to be a monster to do that. You can be gentle and human and kind and be firm and candid at the same time and ultimately demand, demand results. What kind of resources or support have you leaned on during your career to build your leadership muscles? So many that there isn't anyone that sticks out. And I don't know if that makes sense. I read articles left, right, and center all the time. It's the accumulation of all of that material over the years, right? I'm trying to think like, was there one manager, one CEO, one that I've reported to? And I learned something from every every single person I've ever worked with, either people that I reported into, or people that reported to me, or peers. And look, sometimes I learned, oh my God, that's the worst boss I've ever, ever had. Please remind me never to do that and that and that, right? That's a lesson in and of itself, and I appreciate it. I may not be in touch with them anymore, but I appreciate them for having taught me that lesson. And again, I, I feel to me learning and leadership has been much more around a slow kind of osmosis and absorption of many, many trigger points and sources and, and stimuli, including my wife and including my children, including my parents and, and, and high school teachers and university teachers, right? Underlying all of that, I think ultimately there is an element around developing your value system and staying true to your value system. And as I said earlier, you know, keeping 
keeping a spirit of learning and a spirit of openness along the way so that as all these kind of stimuli are happening, you're actually there to absorb them and pay attention to them. Have you had any really great mentors or coaches in your career? I have. I've been very lucky in having both mentors and coaches. And uh, mentors have often been former bosses that I looked up to and who then kind of became friends and stayed on as friends and mentors afterwards. Coaches I have had, and, and I have today, um, they've been more purposeful. They've been different type of coaching and different types of my career, different moments in my career. I think there are moments in, in your career, quite natural, I mean, career is never linear, right? Your career goes through ups and downs and goes through cycles. There are moments in your career where you may be going through a patch of particular self-confidence. You're feeling pretty good as to where you are. And you may either not need to rely on as much coaching or may, you may not be in a frame of mind to think you need or to be listening to coaching. And that's fine as well. And I think, I think it's okay to say that sometimes. Say, you know what, right now, I'm kind of on cruising altitude on this particular moment and, and I'm okay. But equally, I think you need to be honest enough with yourself when the time comes to say, ooh, I'm about to face into you know, organizational changes. I'm about to face into budget challenges or I'm about to change a role or I just got promoted and I feel somewhat uncomfortable in terms of the challenges being put upon me. And at that moment in time, I say, well, I may need someone to help me on that. Do you think mentorship is an important part of being a leader? Yes, but again, I wouldn't over-formalize it. I think mentorship looks very different and may feel very different one person to the next. You can label it mentorship, but sometimes just having a chat with a colleague or have someone that you feel you can confide in. Sometimes it may be university friend that's in a completely different career and sector, you know, but knows you well and has a very particular candid way of speaking to you. Looking for someone that you can trust to bounce thoughts and ideas off of and listen to, well, that, that is mentorship. And, you know, it may not fit into the box of the definition, well, this is what a good mentorship program looks like. And, you know, I'm not saying companies shouldn't have formal mentorship programs. It's great. But I think we just need to recognize that whenever you put anything in a box, whether it's a mentorship program or anything else, it's likely not to be the right box for everyone. And you just need to accept the need for individuality and for customization. And, and that's why, you know, again, I, I was hesitating a bit when you say about mentorship, because yes, I have mentored and I, I am mentored, but it's often kind of outside of the strict box of the definition of mentorship. Have you experienced any failures in your career that have considerably impacted your leadership style or the way you are as a person today? Yes, absolutely. I think the long-term impact on my leadership, Ash, is that I've drawn strength from them eventually. And I can, I can now look at my leadership style and point to how some of those failures over time have given me a confidence I have today that I may not have had in the past, or they may have taught me a lesson that I still remember, or you know, they, they created scenarios and situations and mistakes that I'm particularly sensitive and aware of, so I don't make them again, etc. But while they were happening, right? I mean, some of them were pretty miserable, and you know, there were certainly times in my career when I thought I had I misstepped or I had made the wrong decision, and I thought my career was going the wrong way or was going downward, not upwards, and 
And, and, you know, and all, all of that was probably true, and all of that is probably true. But again, the benefit of hindsight is I now know that every single one of them ended up then becoming the platform to recover from that, right? Or a platform to grow from that. And when I look at how my career has gone and I look back at those times, I learned my lessons. I'm glad I went through them. They were uncomfortable when I did. And there was a lot of self-doubt at times. But it's all panned out nice. so far. <laughs> and you kind of have to have a bit of a growth mindset if you want to work towards something bigger and better, right? And learn yeah, from those you, mistakes. You do, but again, right, it's, it's, it's one of those wonderful things that it's easy to say, it's a lot harder to do. And, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays about part of the dangers of social media is you only ever see other people posting pictures of their beautiful holidays, right? And you don't see them when they're not wearing makeup and they're miserable on a Tuesday morning when it's raining, right? And, and to some extent, I think when, when you're growing in your career and you're learning to lead and you're trying to be successful, it's very easy to benchmark yourself with people that you think are all more successful than you are, right? Oh, such and such, oh my, he's, he or she's been at you know, Coca-Cola for so many years and just got their third promotion. And, and it's, you know, it's, I, I think it's very easy to get distracted by all these tiny people all around you that seemingly, because oftentimes when you ask them, they probably have you know, similar frustrations, seemingly having very linear and very successful careers. And you benchmark yourself against that and you feel like, oh, you know, I've gone wrong. I made this decision. And look, you know, I, I really think, again, it's easy for me to say now, but there's a huge merit in just focusing a bit more on, on your own learning journey, having that growth mindset, as you say, and, and just acknowledging different chapters of your career for what they are. Try to be as critical and as analytical as possible to really extract the value you're getting out. And even when you're in a rough patch, almost like say to yourself, look, I know it's a rough patch. I'm not enjoying it. I'm going to do something about it. But while I'm in it, what can I learn from this? What, what, what is this patch doing that I can then almost flip around and turn into strength in the future? I think a lot of those things come with the benefit of hindsight, though, doesn't it? Yeah. What's the best piece of advice you think you've had in your career so far? Don't try to be good at everything. Don't try to be perfect. Don't try and fix all the things you're not as good at or don't try and fix everything people have told you you need to get better at. But rather hone in on the things that you already have a strength in and natural strength in. Maximize that. Surround yourself with the people that will compensate or counterbalance some of the things you're not so good at. And try to be known for, try to become known for one or two or a handful of things that, that all ultimately kind of you are attached to, right? Because if you try to become famous for 27 things, you will fail miserably. Whereas if three, four, five years later, people say, oh, Alex, yeah, I remember Alex. He did this. Or, oh, yeah, I know him. He, he was a person at this, this, and that, right? You're going to have left a mark for one or two things that really matter. When's your most productive time of the day to work? Early morning. But when I say early morning, I, I mean after a shower and probably my second cup of coffee. So that's not 6 a.m. It's more probably somewhere between 9 and 
Nice. What what time does your alarm go off in the morning? 6.30. And do you get straight up or do you lay there straight for up. a little bit? Straight up. Do you prefer to work at home or in the office? Office. Every single time. Why? People. I really believe that chemistry happens in the air between bodies when they look each other in the eye. You can't replicate that. I understand the benefits of working at home. You need that sometimes. But I would never ever replace that permanently for interacting with people in an office environment. Uh, leaders love a good book recommendation, Alex. What book or books have taught you the most about leadership? I'll give you two, and they're probably, they're both Antarctic survival stories. The first one's Endurance, which is the Ernest Shackleton story. And I think that's a more outright leadership book. And it didn't teach me about leadership. It's not like, you know, just having habits of an effective leader type book. I'm not a big fan of those type of books, by the way. It's more through the inspiration of someone that did something remarkable. And I'm no Ernest Shackleton, just to be clear, uh, nor will I ever be. But to me, reading about an incredible figure and what they did and how they did it just works better for me than, you know, here's the framework and here's the seven bullets you need to be followed, et cetera. And I, th I think it's a remarkable story. The second one is called Mawson's Will, and it's the story of Douglas Mawson, and he was an Australian explorer of Antarctica. And there it's not so much a leadership book, it's more of a particular survival story. But there's an element to that survival story which I think has a huge influence on, on the thought about leadership, which is grit and resilience and how when you are thrown into a situation where things are really, 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 really tough, where do you find the fortitude to still get up and put one foot in front of the other and keep walking out of that crisis or out of that situation and ultimately survive? And I guess if people can survive that kind of adversity, you think, well, I can survive this at work, can't I? It does help me to think about Douglas Mawson sometimes when you're you know, when I try and pick up my running or I try to, you know, do sports or something like, oh, I can't run another mile. And you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I probably can. <laughs> Outside of work, who is the real Alex von Schermeister? I don't think it's that far off from inside work, Ash. And maybe that's, we haven't talked about that as part of leadership. Maybe that's one of the leadership traits that I've learned over the years is how can you find an environment where you don't actually have to switch personalities and they can both be the same. And I think if you'd asked me this question 20 years ago, and then 10 years ago, and then five years ago, the Alex von Schermacher outside of work and inside of work would have been two completely different personalities. And as I've become older and maybe more self-confident, and also as I've found working environments where I feel I can be the true expression of myself. They've just been coming closer and closer and closer and closer. And look, here at Zero, I don't feel like I leave the office and I go home and I'm a different person. You're a husband and a father. How do you balance having a hugely important job and like maintaining relationships at home? And what kind of stuff do you do on the weekends as a family and stuff? First of all, I, I wish I could sit here and say that I do balance it. I live with a certain degree of guilt all the time as to could I have been a better husband? Could I have been a better father? 
what can I still do now to be a better husband and better father? And look, there's no question that I have made sacrifices and some of those sacrifices may have felt right at the time and in hindsight, you know, they may maybe weren't. And I think I'm much more conscious now about finding that balance, but I haven't always gotten that balance right. That said, I think a lot of it is just making sure that the time you spend is quality time, that you are present, that you're properly able to disconnect from work matters and be with the family. I wish I could say I've always been an exemplary of that. I haven't, um, but I, I try hard to nowadays. Where food is in the family, we spend a lot of time in the kitchen cooking and socializing around food. My wife's a baker, she loves baking. and So there's just a lot, a lot around either going to restaurants or, you know, what are we going to cook and shopping on a Saturday to then cook a dinner in the evening. And um, my son in particular started to get into that a little bit as well. Just spending time, I don't think, you know, we don't really have a family hobby that we're kind of, we hone in on. We just do a little bit of everything. Do you have a favorite cuisine that you cook as a family? It's very seasonal. I, I grew up in Mexico, as you know, and so, you know, I, I love cooking Mexican food and a lot of Mexican dishes. My children tend to like that as well. My wife's French, so you know, sometimes, especially in the winter, we'll, we'll do more kind of hearty French meals. But we experiment quite a bit as well, depending on what cookbook we just picked up on or what TV show we just watched. We'll try different things. Yeah. Why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background, where you grew up, where you moved since oh. before coming to London? Well, I'll try and give you the short version. I was born and raised to German parents in Mexico. I think that's probably the most important part, right? Is I, I grew up in kind of a bicultural environment because I grew up in Mexico, but in a very German household. We spoke German at home, but I spoke Spanish outside of home. I went to a German school, but a lot of my friends were Mexican friends. And I say that because that bicultural upbringing then conditioned a lot of what I did afterwards. Um, you know, when you grow up in Mexico, you learn English at a pretty young age. Um, so that kind of came naturally. And that then led me to study in the U.S. So I did my undergraduate degree in the U.S. And then eventually I, I really did want to come to Europe. And so the way I came to Europe was through my MBA. So I came to Europe in 1997 to study my MBA in France. And I've been in Europe ever since. I managed through my jobs and career choices and what have you not. I managed to do my MBA in France, then I came to the UK for a few years. Then I moved to Spain. And I was in Spain for about four years. Then I moved to Paris, lived in Paris for about seven years. Then I moved to Zurich, and we were in Switzerland for about six years. And then in 2016, we moved to the UK again. So now we're in the UK. My wife is French. I met her in London, but my wife's French. And so we're just a very confused household. But How many languages do you speak? I speak four. My wife speaks four and a half, but they're not necessarily the same ones. So I guess in the household, if you really wanted to push it, they're like you know, five and a half languages um, dancing around. Yeah. And uh, my kids are utterly confused. They don't. I mean, they, they they know what passport they have, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's their identity. My son feels English, and very much identifies with the UK. My daughter is much more fiercely French, and uh, we enjoy it. We enjoy it, right? I mean, there's there's an aspect of that sometimes where I sometimes feel like I'm missing out to the depth of the relationship with a particular root, if that makes sense. 
But then that very quickly kind of contrasts with, well, you, true, you may not have that, but you have the breadth of having experience and being quite familiar with, with all these different cultures. I'm very, very aware of how privileged I've been to be exposed to as many countries and cultures. How would your kids describe you? <laughs> I think you should ask them. <laughs> um, they'd probably describe me as someone with a terrible sense of humor who just continuously tries to crack jokes, but is really, really bad at it. But I think they'd also describe me as caring and gentle, but probably strict when I need to be. More than anything, I just I try to be there for them, Ash, and I, I, hopefully they would, they would say that, that I'm there for them when they need me. Nice. So a bit like how you are at work. Well, there you go. You see? <laughs> They've come together. Yeah. Um, you're a wine lover. Mm. You've even done wine tasting events for us at Zero already yeah. in the London office for the team and with our expat partners. How did you get so passionate about wine or why? The first memory I have of really developing passion for wine, I spent this summer in the Loire Valley near Tours in France to learn French. And the uh, I must have been 15, 16, 17 at the time. And one afternoon after French school was over, the owner of the school said, oh, Alex, I'll show you around. And he kind of opened this little metal gate and we went down the staircase into the cellar. And the cellar was, was a, a cellar that was dug into the ground. This wasn't you know, a laid out cement cellar, but it was dug into the ground. And there were thousands of bottles and there was no light. He lit a candle. I was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. And you know, as, as a French from the Loire Valley, he then proceeded to open different bottles and, and just start exposing me to different wines. And I didn't understand the wines at the time. I didn't know how to appreciate the difference. But there was something about that experience and realizing that there was such a deep-rooted tradition and attachment of a region to a tradition that really appealed to me, almost kind of romantically just appealed to me. Right? There, was, there was something quite emotional about that. And I think, you know, the reality over the years I've really gotten taken by the magic of the of the complexity of wine. Right? When you think about wine being a living organism and all the influences that went into making it, right? From the soil to which slope of which mountain or valley it grew up, facing which direction, the particular temperature and rainfall of that year how it was harvested, how it was made, how it was put in a bottle, whether it was in a barrel or not. It's such an incredible multivariable formula of biology and physics and chemistry and luck. It's just, I find it fascinating to kind of understand them and then appreciate them. I think more recently, I've, I've really kind of fallen in love with the struggle of the small business aspect to that. And, and, and I say that because obviously that's what we do at Zero all the time, right? And even before zero, I guess, the, um, when you think about a wine grower, that's a hard business. That's a hard, hard business. It's difficult to make money as a wine grower. And you think about just, I guess, the, the value chain that goes into making wine and how much hard work has gone in from this wine grower to grow the grapes and then harvest them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Again, there's just a heroic effort that goes into making a good wine and putting that on the shelf. And I really, really appreciate that. So all of that kind of combined has led me to want to know more about what I drink and hence study it. 
And so that's why I've been getting some of my, my wine certifications. You're having a dinner party with your best friends or super special family members. What type of wines would you choose and why? <laughs> well, more often than not, uh, we will choose the food choices first and then I'll try and match the wines to that. And then, you know, wine, it's a mood thing, Ash, right? So I, I think it really depends on, is it festive? Is it joyous? Do you want to celebrate? Do you just want to have a, a more steadfast go-to bottle? What time of year is it? For example, I typically only drink rosé around the summer months, right? I, I wouldn't open a bottle of rosé on a rain November on a rainy November night, right? It just it just doesn't feel right. I want to say I love all my wines. I, I don't. There's some wines I don't like, but uh, I think each wine has a moment at different occasion. <laughs> this is a Christmas cracker question. Who's one person, dead or alive, that you'd have for dinner? Right now, right now, I'd love I'd love to meet Jurgen Klopp. I'm not a massive football person. I really am not. But I guess it goes back to the topic of leadership we've been having all along. I, I'm just deeply admirative of what he has done with Liverpool FC and his approach. Okay, so if he came for dinner, yeah. what would you serve him and what wine would you pair with it? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I'm afraid he's probably more of a beer person, but I'd probably serve him like a beef stew, um, something like a bœuf bourguignon or like a goulash. And I would probably serve, I know he's from the Black Forest region, so he would have had enough Pinot Noir to last him a lifetime. I wouldn't try and compete with that. I'd probably purposefully serve something different and go more with like an Italian Barolo, for example. Delightful. I'd like to be there too. <laughs> Let's wrap things up with my would you rather questions. Okay. Would you rather, say you were going on holiday next week, would you like a beach holiday or a mountain holiday? A beach. Okay. <laughs> I think I might know the answer to this question, but if you could read fiction or non-fiction books for the rest of your life, what would you choose? Fiction. And if you could only drink red, white, or rosé for the rest of your life? Red. Okay, yeah. Same. It's best. What type of red? Pinot Noir. Yeah, good call. Okay, and if you could start any business tomorrow, what might it be? A tech business. Something in education. Why? I think education to me is one of those sectors that is just fundamentally broken. When you look at the way kids still go through school today, university, there's been some innovation, don't get me wrong, but it's, it's fundamentally not all that different from the way we went through. I think everything we know nowadays about individualization, like customized learning approaches for individuals, the schools just don't reflect that, right? By, but just by their very nature, they're kind of mass education institutions and that's just not the way people are and people take. I don't think the education systems and the governments cannot possibly keep up with what we know now good education would look like or what future generations need. And so I just think the gap is massive. And so I, I wish and I'd love to do something around how do we better adjust some of the education tools and systems to offer kind of curated and personalized education to individuals. Brilliant. 
Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you, Ash. It's been incredibly insightful for me and hopefully for our audience as well. Well, no doubt for them. So yeah. I hope so. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm Ash Gibson and this is Beyond Numbers Season 2. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do hit the follow button and whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating and a review. 